morning. Morning. Are we good? Okay. Uh, it is good to be back. We always love being in Vancouver. We always love being at VCBC. Um, it, it feels like home. We live in Oklahoma, so it would be odd for a Chinese church in Vancouver to feel like home. But uh, home originally is Edmonton, Alberta, and uh, we served for seven years at Edmonton Chinese Baptist Church, and so this really does feel like home. So it's always good to be here and to see familiar faces and uh, to see some faces and I'm like, oh, I should remember that name and I don't. And to see other faces and I'm like, I'm not sure if I remember your face, but I think I might. So thank you for having us back. And uh, thank you to Jeff and Kathy for opening their home to us this weekend. And it's just a blessing and a privilege to be here. Um, the title of my message this morning is, I know what the Bible says, but. Okay? And so we're going to talk a lot about but this morning. We're not being crass. We're not talking about bums. We're talking about a different kind of but. And uh, as we get into it, I want to read two scripture passages for us. They're also printed on the back of your bulletin, so you can be on there to follow along as well. And, uh, oh, is this going to work? Hmm. There we go. It's going to work. First, Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And second from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. May God bless the reading of his word. So about 20 years ago now, I'm, I'm getting really quite old, but about 20 years ago, I was blessed to serve as a pastoral intern at East Old Baptist Church, a wonderful church in a small farming community in south-central Alberta. When one of my professors heard the name of the church I was ministering at, he said, Olds ain't big enough to have an east and a west, but nonetheless, I was at East Old Baptist Church. It was a time of deep learning and development. There were a lot of challenging situations that uh, we were faced with while we were there, and I came face-to-face with a lot of things that I needed to learn as a young man preparing for ministry. But there is one situation that is memorable for a different reason, and I want to share it because it's pertinent to our conversation this morning. Three years before I began as an intern at East Olds, a young single mother arrived in town with two children. She came to the church looking for some assistance. And the senior pastor, who was also new to the church at that time, provided some practical assistance and help. Groceries, money for bills, and so on. Eventually, the woman began attending church with her two kids. And after a year or so, she embraced the love of God through faith in Christ and surrendered her life to Jesus. She was baptized and became an active member of the church. It was a wonderful story of redemption and victory. A while later, that single mom met a man from southern Alberta who also lived who lived about an hour or so away from Olds. This man also was the pastor of a little church in the country. The two became friends and would regularly talk and enjoy one another's company. Over time, the two became romantically involved. And eventually, during my time as intern at the church, there was talk of the two getting married. It was a wonderful, romantic Hollywood ending to the story of redemption. A hallmark Christmas special, 
in the making. There was only one problem. The pastor from that little church, who was romantically involved with the single mom from our church, well, he happened to be already married. He had a wife and three teenage kids. Now, the senior pastor of our church, who was a very good mentor to me and remains a close friend, was close to the single mom through this developing relationship, and he consistently reminded this mom that any type of involvement with a married man was wrong in the eyes of God. He warned her against spending time alone with him. He warned of the dangers of their friendship crossing boundaries and becoming romantic if she persisted in meeting up with him. As the relationship between the two did become romantic, our pastor continued to meet and to talk with the single mom, reminding her that the relationship was not okay, that it was sinful in the eyes of God and his people. Our pastor acted and talked out of a deep love and compassion for the single mom, sincerely desiring what was best for her. As talk grew between the couple about the possibility of marriage, our pastor warned that this man's divorce would not be in accordance with God's will. It wouldn't be blessed by God. A man leaving his wife to marry his mistress is never God's way. The pastor reminded her that any man who divorces his wife commits adultery, that any woman who marries a man who has divorced his wife herself commits adultery. Then came the very unsurprising news that the relationship between the single mom and this married pastor had become openly sexual, that her children knew that their mom was sleeping with a married man in their house. And again, our pastor spoke openly with her about the realities of adultery, the fact that this illicit sexual relationship could not be redeemed, but needed to be abandoned and repented of. He reminded her again and again that the Bible commands us to be faithful to our spouses, to honor the sexual purity of other marriages, and to repent of sexual immorality. And I'll never forget her response. Pastor, I know what the Bible says, but this might be my last chance. This might be my last chance for romance, my last chance for marriage, my last chance to find a man, my last chance for excitement in my life. She wasn't getting any younger. She had two children. Eligible single men in the area were not particularly abundant. So she said, I know what the Bible says, but I'm going to do this anyway. Those are very sad words to hear. I know what the Bible says, but whenever we go down that road, we are in deep spiritual trouble. I know what the Bible says, but I'm going to do this anyway. I know what the Bible says, but I don't want to do that. I know what the Bible says, but... Have you ever said something like that? Or heard others say something like that? Now, I love reading stories of redemption and forgiveness, but oftentimes stories of redemption come with a challenge. Remember hearing the story of a refugee from Cambodia whose parents and ten siblings were massacred by the Khmer Rouge regime in the 1980s, and whose life then became consumed with a desire for vengeance upon the men responsible for his family's deaths. The man became a Christian, but was still unable to forgive the killers. He confesses, I found it hard to forgive because according to my justice, the killers were the ones who deserved to die, not my family. The injustice of their deaths programmed my mind toward thinking always, of revenge. His story is deeply tragic and heartrending, but is mirrored in the lives of Christians around the world. I have heard from multiple Christians something along these lines, not always in situations where family members have been murdered brutally like the Khmer Rouge, but other areas where people have hurt them deeply. 
I know the Bible says I need to forgive them, but I just can't. I know that Jesus says to forgive your brother who sins against you, but he doesn't deserve forgiveness. I know God says to forgive one another as we are forgiven in Christ, but I'm just not willing to do that. This area of forgiveness, letting go of past wrongs, is one that is difficult for us to be obedient to God's Word. I know what the Bible says, but... There are a lot of other areas of life and faith where Christians often say, I know what the Bible says, but... And I want to touch quickly on three of them, very quickly. Salvation through Christ, sexuality, and money. First, God's Word makes it abundantly clear that there is one way to salvation, one path to knowing God, one means to finding eternal life. And it is through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of the one true God. In John 14.6, Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Acts 4.12 emphasizes that there is no other name under heaven given by which men might be saved. So the Bible teaches quite clearly and openly that faith in Jesus Christ is the only path to salvation. And yet many Christians say, I know what the Bible says, but I can't accept that. I think other religions can lead to salvation too. Other religions can lead to knowledge of God. So in regards to Jesus and the salvation he brings, Christians sometimes say, I know what the Bible says, but... Yesterday we looked a lot, yesterday night, we looked a lot at biblical teaching on sexuality. Uh, We've looked a little bit this morning at biblical teaching on adultery and divorce and remarriage. But there's other sexual areas where Christians say either explicitly or implicitly, I know what the Bible says, but... Homosexuality is a very prominent contemporary example. I'm not going to dive deeply into it this morning, but the Bible is consistent and unanimous in identifying same-sex activity as sinful in the eyes of God. A man shall not lie with a man as he lies with a woman. This is abominable. New Testament lists of vices regularly include homosexuality. Biblical teaching on marriage is emphatic and always related back to God's created order. A man shall be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Yet many contemporary Christians choose to either deny the biblical teaching I know that Leviticus says homosexual behavior is wrong, but we don't live by Old Testament law anymore. We live under grace. Or they reinterpret biblical passages. I know that Romans condemn same-sex behavior, but Paul is really only talking about pedophilia. Or they ignore biblical teaching on sexuality in favor of biblical teaching on an undefined and misdirected notion of love. I know the Bible says homosexuality is sinful, but these two women love each other so much, so strongly. God can't be opposed to that kind of romance, can he? The Bible is similarly crystal clear about indulging sexual lust. Jesus emphasizes that lusting after a woman is committing adultery with her in your heart. Yet millions of Christian men indulge in pornography anyways. I know what the Bible says about lust, but this isn't hurting anybody. It's just harmless self-entertainment. So in regards to many sexual issues, Christians proclaim, I know what the Bible says, but... And we find the same thing when we turn to material wealth, to money and material wealth. I'm sorry, I'm a slide behind. I'll catch up. Again, we're not going to delve deeply into it, but God's teaching with regards to the evils of greed, materialism, and the desire to accumulate is clear. Paul declares in 1 Timothy 6, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Jesus reminds us that you cannot serve both God and money. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Yet Christians say in words and deeds, I know what the Bible says about money, 
but I don't care. I want more stuff. The American dream is to become richer, more financially successful, to accumulate more material wealth. And if money becomes the focus, then the American dream becomes the anti-Christian dream. The Bible tells us to be cheerful givers and reminds us that all that we have is a gift from God and that we are merely stewards of it, not owners of it. Yet Christians say in words and deeds, I know what the Bible says about giving generously, but money is tight and I've worked hard for what I have. Let somebody else give. So in regards to money and material wealth, Christians sometimes say, I know what the Bible says, but... What a dangerous word that is. I know what the Bible says, but... As soon as we say that but, we are in deep trouble. There's four considerations that I want to look at together when we think about the statement, I know what the Bible says, but... First, I'm going to argue this is an attitude that is out of bounds for a professing Christian. Second... It's an attitude that I think is perfectly normal for a normal person, someone who is not a follower of Christ. Third, what the Bible says, it says for our own benefit. And fourth, when we swallow our butts and replace it with therefore, we can then experience the joy and peace of the Lord. So first, when we declare, I know what the Bible says, but we immediately place ourselves outside of Jesus Christ, outside of his will for our life. Such an attitude is simply not an option for the follower of Jesus Christ. A faithful Christian cannot have an open or hidden disregard for the deliverances of God's Word. The Bible is the Word of God. God's revelation of His own character, His own deeds, His love for us, His expectations of us, His desires for us. The Bible is God's self-revelation to humanity. Because of His love for us, He has chosen to reveal Himself. He didn't have to. He was under no obligation to us He was not compelled to tell us about himself. But God chose out of his love to reveal himself to us. And as such, the Bible is given so that men and women can come to know God. The purpose of the Bible is to bring us into a saving relationship with the one who created us. Furthermore, the Bible is a complete source of truth. In all that it intends to impart to the reader, it conveys the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. As our Baptist faith and message affirms, the Bible is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It is without error. In addition, God's Word is our authority for faith and practice. Our understanding of God must be rooted in Scripture, the source of God's self-revelation to us. We can't base our understanding of God's nature, His character, His will, His purpose upon human experience or even upon the writings of other men and women, even good and admirable ones like Billy Graham or Martin Luther or St. Augustine or even upon the teaching of the institutional church. Our knowledge of God must be founded upon the Word of God. So think about this. How do we know about God? How do we learn about who God is? The character of God, the will of God, the desires of God. How do we know what is right and wrong? How do we know how we can be saved? How can we know that we can be redeemed by the saving blood of Christ? How do we know how God wants us to live? Now, for some of these questions, human philosophy can bring us some insights. You see, I enjoy cosmology. I like looking at cosmological proofs for the existence of God. I like talking about intelligent design, how you can see the fine-tuning of the universe and say there must be a designer who created all this. I like talking about morality, about the innate morality that all human beings have, this recognition we have that there is a code of right and wrong that we are called to live according to and how this points to the existence of a creator, a transcendent standard for this morality. 
Yet all of this human wisdom and understanding can only bring us so far. It can help us to understand that God is, but it cannot bring us to understand who God is or how God desires us to live. It can't help us to find the path to salvation, fulfilled redemption here and eternal life after. For all of these things and much more, we are dependent upon God's self-revelation in Scripture, the inspired, authoritative Word of God. It is from the Bible that we gain an understanding of what God is like. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And to love God means to love God in His fullness, not in some emasculated semi-Christian representation. To love God in His fullness. To love God in His fullness requires that we know God in His fullness. And to know God in His fullness requires that we know God's Word, that we read it, that we understand it, to learn who God is. Loving God means accepting His self-revelation and refusing to say, I know what the Bible says, but... It is fashionable in academia and in many Christian circles today to embrace some aspects of the Bible while rejecting others. So, for example, some will say in one breath, the Bible calls upon us to love the poor and the downtrodden, to demonstrate social compassion for them by helping them. But in the next breath, they will say, well, yeah, the Bible says to cherish the wife of our youth, but I just don't love her anymore. And we can't live under the same roof any longer. I want a divorce. Or someone might say, the Bible says not to judge one another, but to leave judgment up to God. The Bible says to love one another, to accept one another as we are, and they'll hold this part of the Bible's teaching up and say we need to live according to it. And in the next breath they will say, well, yes, the New Testament presents Jesus as the divine Son of God who died for our sins and rose again. But I think that's just a myth for the importance of Jesus' teachings about love and acceptance. They accept this side of the Bible and they reject this side of the Bible. But guys, God's Word is God's Word from cover to cover, if it's God's Word at all. We cannot pick and choose what we want to accept and what we want to reject. This ain't dim sum, where we can take from one cart and let another pass. Either it is God's Word, and therefore it's authoritative for us, and we need to live in submission to it, or it's not God's Word at all, in which case we really don't need to accept any of it, any more than I have to accept the advice of political columnists from the New York Times. It cannot be both ways. If it's not God's Word, we don't need it to defend our pet projects or desires. If it is God's Word, we can't reject the parts of it that are contrary to our own desires or thoughts. The follower of Jesus Christ acknowledges the authority of God's Word. Hence, I know what the Bible says, but is simply not an option for Christians. Either Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, or He is neither. So that's the first major takeaway this morning. I know what the Bible says, but... That but is not an option for the believer. Second, however, and I want to emphasize this really strongly. Okay? When I first went to church, I was not a believer. Right? And so there's many people that come to church for the first time and they are not followers of Jesus Christ. They're just normal people. Did you realize it's us Christians who are weird? How many of you today here are followers of Jesus Christ? Okay, you're weird. All right? You're really strange and you may not realize exactly how strange you are But to normal people, you're kind of freaks. Like, you're really unusual. You live your life in submission to somebody that, from the world's perspective, died 2,000 years ago. Why are you living your life in submission to a dead man? Furthermore, you celebrate really weird holidays. You have this particular holiday called Good Friday. 
You know what happened on Good Friday? They took a guy who was innocent and they beat him up and they whipped him and they flogged him and they put a crown of thorns on his head and they stripped him naked and then they nailed his hands and feet to a cross so that he could die. And we celebrate this. And we're like, we'll call it Good Friday. You know, to the world that looks really, really weird. You realize that? So Christians, you're weird. Okay? Normal people come to church for the first time and they are not followers of Jesus Christ. Okay, so my point here is just that there's normal people and then there's Christians. And as Christians, it's us Christians that are the weird ones, okay? So if you're here today and you are not a Christian, you're normal. Congratulations, okay? I invite you to become weird, to become a follower of Jesus and to be weird, okay? But this attitude, I know what the Bible says, but that's a perfectly normal and acceptable attitude for a normal person, for someone who is not a follower of Christ. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, then I would not expect you to really care much about what the Bible says about your activities and desires. Right? So when I was in high school, I was not a Christian. I was a mouthy, crude, pagan headbanger. I had hair back then. I'd never been in church. I didn't even know what the Bible was or said. But if someone was to object to my vocabulary or actions and said, Tawa, the Bible says we should be kind and use our words to encourage other people, what would my response have been? So what? Why should I care what the Bible says? I don't give a rip. And after all, why should I have cared? Objectively speaking, we can rightly say that the Bible's commandments apply to all people whether they know it or not and like it or not. Okay? And that's true. But it remains the case that I did not acknowledge the authority of Scripture over my life. And so rightly, I had no regard for what the Bible might expect of me. For teenage me to say, I know what the Bible says, but I don't care was perfectly appropriate given my lack of relationship with God. The bottom line is you can't expect atheists to think or behave or believe like Christians. You can't expect the tiger to act like a horse. So a second takeaway. While I know what the, I know what the Bible says, but is inappropriate for Christians, it is expected and normal for normal people, for non-Christians. Third, God's commands... Oops, oh dear, am I behind again? There we go. Third, God's commands and narratives in Scripture are given for our own good and growth. And this, again, is easy to miss and important to emphasize. I talked a little bit about this last night with Journey Fellowship. Christians hold that God created human beings in His own image, that He knows us, and that He desires that we enjoy a fulfilled life, both here and hereafter. No, this doesn't mean that God promises sugar and spice and everything nice. What it does mean is that, as Jesus says in John 10.10, I came to give you life and life abundantly. So the quote-unquote rules of the Christian faith, God's commands articulated in Scripture, are not restrictions placed around us, hemming us in on all sides like an overprotective killjoy. Rather, His rules are put in place that we might individually and communally enjoy the best that life has to offer. And we know that from other settings, rules, at least good rules, are designed to enhance our enjoyment. Uh, so we live in Oklahoma, right? And in Oklahoma, football is king. It's like the king sport, right? So... Uh, when guys in church get together, we play football on a Sunday afternoon and then I'm sore for half the week, but nonetheless, it's fun. But the first time I played backyard football with some of the guys from church, I apparently didn't know what was meant by defensive pass interference. It turns out you're not allowed to piggyback the receiver as he runs his route. Who knew, right? This was news to me. So, any, But why is that a rule in football? Why can't you jump on the back of the guy who's trying to catch the ball? so that the game has flow to it, so that everybody can play, and so that it's more 
enjoyable. The rules are there for a reason. Now, I grew up in Edmonton, and in Edmonton, football's not king. What's king? Hockey, right? So, we play hockey, and what happens if there's a guy standing in front of the net, and he's going to try to deflect the puck into the net, and one of the defensemen just takes a stick and starts hacking away at the guy's head? What happens? Well, first of all, it hurts a whole lot, right? You're not allowed to do that in hockey. Why not? Why is that rule there? So that the game is more enjoyable. You enjoy the game of football more when the rules are in place and people follow the rules. You enjoy the game of hockey more when the rules are in place and people follow the rules. Right? It's designed to enhance, not to limit the game. When there are no rules, you have chaos, not peace. Frustration, not joy. Similarly, God establishes rules surrounding things like sexuality and material wealth so that we might be kept from harm and might value things in proper proportions. Guys, the sociological data, I'm not a sociologist, right? But it's pretty clear and pretty overwhelming. Significantly higher rates of emotional and sexual satisfaction are reported by married couples who have never experienced divorce. Higher satisfaction than any other demographic. More anecdotally, I can tell you that I have never, never once in my life have I heard a Christian say, boy, I sure wish I'd had sex with more people before I got married. Never once have I heard that. Many times I've heard people say, boy, I sure wish I hadn't messed around with so many people before I got married. Right? Anecdotally, I can just tell you this is the case. The Beatles understood it. We talked about this last night. Money can't buy me love. Right? Greater material wealth does not correlate statistically to higher levels of joy and fulfillment. Now, poverty doesn't make people happy either. The point is that there's not a direct connection between how much stuff you have or don't have and how satisfied you are in life. And guess what? God knows that. Why does he give us guidelines, rules, expectations? Because he knows what is best for us. And so he gives us these rules so that we might enjoy life and enjoy it to the fullest. So our third takeaway is this. As it turns out, living with the attitude, I know what the Bible says, but it's not just sinfully rebellious against God. It's also committing self-harm. It's hurting yourself. Fourth, and we'll close on this note. When we swallow our butts and replace it with therefore, we can then experience the peace and joy of the Lord. Jesus says that discipleship requires us to take up our cross daily and follow him. And oftentimes taking up our cross means putting to death what I think is best for myself, the desires that I might have, and embracing what God says is best for me and is right. It means replacing but with therefore. I know what the Bible says, therefore I am going to act accordingly. I know that the Bible says homosexual behavior is wrong. Therefore, even though I experience strong same-sex attraction, I'm going to refrain from acting upon it. I know that the Bible says lusting after women is wrong. Therefore, even though pornography is readily available and temporarily enjoyable, I'm going to guard my eyes and my heart and stay away. I know, what the, I know the Bible says that we are to be cheerful and generous givers. Therefore, even though I'm not a rich man, I'm going to go above and beyond my tithe and help that single mom in our church buy groceries for her kids. I know that the Bible says Jesus is the only way to heaven. Therefore, even though I wish I could declare my Muslim friends to be in good standing with God, I'm going to seek to share the gospel with them instead so that they too can be God's children. Replacing but with therefore brings joy, brings life, and brings fulfillment. We had this demonstrated powerfully in our home church in Oklahoma, literally the week before I shared a similar message in our home church. One of the older ladies in the church shared some of her testimony with our youth group. Her name is Sandra Migo. 
And her mother, when she was young, was brutally murdered in cold blood during a petty robbery, a robbery for like a hundred bucks, and the robber ended up shooting Sandra Amigo's mom and killing her. And Sandra shared that for years she wanted and sought nothing but vengeance for the woman who killed her mom. In her own words, she says she knew that as a Christian she needed to forgive the woman, but she just couldn't. The woman didn't deserve it. The killer deserved to die. And she just could not bring herself to forgive the woman for what she had done. Nearly five years later, she says, after praying long and hard and asking for God to help release her from the burdens on her soul, Sandra shares that she was able to forgive the woman for her crime. And she says, and I quote, You would not believe the relief, the weight that was lifted off my shoulders, the immediate joy that flooded my soul when she did what she knew the Bible required of her. So long as she said, I know what the Bible says, but she was oppressed and burdened and weighed down. When she replaced her but with therefore, God freed her from the guilt and the fear and the anger and the bitterness. Her mother is still dead. The killer is still an unrepentant criminal. But Sandra no longer carries the weight of unforgiveness around with her. She still carries the grief of losing her mom. But the weight of the unforgiveness and the bitterness is gone. So, brothers and sisters, the question for us today is how many of us need to replace our buts with therefores? I've mentioned a few areas in which Christians might say, I know what the Bible says, but have you been butting heads with God's Word in one of those areas? Or is there another area of your life where you know what the Bible says, but? My encouragement is to allow the Holy Spirit to examine your heart, to allow the Spirit to convict you in the areas where you've been withholding your obedience to God's Word. And I pray that you would open yourself to replacing your buts with therefore. Do you know what the Bible says? Then let us live accordingly to the praise and glory of God. Bring your buts to the altar. Lay down your opposition to what God clearly says and follow His way. Now, if you're a normal person here today and you've never considered the claims of Christ on your life, then perhaps it's a time to allow God to be both Savior and Lord for you. Bring your butts to the altar too and surrender. Let us pray. Father God, we do thank You, Lord, for the gift of Your Word, Your self-revelation to us. Lord, You are a God of grace, a God of love, and a God of forgiveness. And we so easily forget that, Lord. We so often think that what You have said in Your Word, the rules You lay down, the moral commandments You articulate, that they are there to hem us in, to bind us in, to make our life difficult, to make our life joyless. And Lord, out of Your abundant love for us and Your knowledge of us and what is best for us, instead You have given us guidelines that will allow us to enjoy the life that You have created us for. So Lord, I pray that we would find it within ourselves to submit to You and to Your Word, to replace our buts with therefores, to accept Your Word as You articulate it to us, and to follow Your ways. Lord, I pray that your joy and your peace and your fulfillment would flow through each heart here that opens themselves to you. I pray that your Holy Spirit will convict where conviction is needed and will comfort where comfort is needed. And Lord, we pray all of this for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.